My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Samir Shaheen Hussein. Settler colonialism and white supremacy aren't just about the feelings in individual hearts, and they aren't freestanding social evils that exist separate from the rest of life. Rather, they are part of how life in North America is organized, and they weave through all kinds of different institutions and areas of social life, including institutions that we like to think of as being about helping, like the healthcare system. Today's episode focuses on a successful 2018 campaign in Quebec against one specific manifestation of medical colonialism. In remote and northern communities, when someone is seriously injured or ill, they might be flown down to a hospital in an urban center for treatment. In Quebec, for a long time, this has been done by a government agency called Quebec Aeromedical Evacuations, which is abbreviated as AVAC in French. For many years, when it was a child that had to be transported, AVAC would not let a caregiver accompany them. While this applied to both non-Indigenous and Indigenous people living in remote and northern communities, it was consistently Inuit and Cree communities in the far north that were most severely affected. There were multiple efforts over close to 30 years to get the government of Quebec and AVAC to change this practice, but they consistently refused. It's hard to imagine a scenario in which it wouldn't be traumatic to separate a child who is already in distress from their caregiver and force them to go to an unfamiliar place, surrounded by unfamiliar people, who would then do who knows what to them as part of their treatment. The absence of a caregiver also makes it impossible to get proper consent for procedures. In addition, younger Inuit children often speak no English or French, and medical staff in southern hospitals don't generally speak Inuktitut, making it even more isolating for the children and preventing medical staff from asking basic diagnostic questions. All of this is in the context of long colonial histories of settler professionals going into indigenous communities and removing children from indigenous families, whether that's to send them to residential schools, to put them in the child welfare system, or for some other purpose. According to today's guest, there were even instances in Quebec in earlier decades of officials taking Inuit kids for medical treatment, then telling their families that they had died, and fostering them out to families in the South. Samir Shaheen Hussein is a pediatric emergency physician who practices in Montreal, and a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McGill University. He has also been involved in grassroots social justice organizing around issues like indigenous solidarity, migrant justice, and anti-police brutality for more than a decade and a half. Though his hospital sees hundreds of cases of this sort every year, there were two in particular in the summer of 2017 that inspired him to take action to get this policy changed. He and a few colleagues started out by doing research. They found, crucially, that no other jurisdiction in Canada had a policy like AVAC's, and they found that standards of care published in the medical research literature across North America and Europe recommended that children be accompanied by caregivers during emergency transport and care. 
In December of 2017, the relevant departments at his hospital sent a letter to the Quebec government presenting what they had found and asking for a change in policy. By late January 2018, they still had no response, so they went to the media, and they launched a campaign that they called A Hand to Hold. That set off a whole chain of events, including ample media coverage, endorsements from other hospitals and professional bodies, people sharing tragic stories, an early promise by the Quebec government to change with no evidence of actual change, autonomously organized petitions and actions and confronting of politicians, and finally, in September of 2018, an actual change in the practice. Since that point, children from remote and northern communities in Quebec can now be accompanied by a caregiver when they are flown south for medical care. Shaheen Hussein talks with me about medical colonialism and about the details of the A Hand to Hold campaign, and he applies his experience as a longtime organizer in more grassroots contexts to analyzing it. My name is Samir Shaheen Hussein. I've been involved with social justice movements for, I guess, over 15 years starting initially with Indigenous solidarity work, actually, and then also taking on migrant justice, anti-police brutality work over the years. And then over the last few years, I've started focusing more also on health justice work. I'm also trained as a pediatric emergency physician. I work in Montreal. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics in the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University. And the campaign that I was involved with over the last year is called the A Hand to Hold campaign, which sought to end a long-standing draconian practice in the province of Quebec that prevented parents or caregivers from accompanying their kids who required emergency medical air evacuation from rural and remote regions in the province that most adversely impacted Indigenous, particularly Inuit communities from northern Quebec in Nunavik. In Quebec since the 1980s, most medical air evacuations are done by a governmental agency that's called EVAC. In French, it's Evacuation Aeromédicale du Québec. They have several different services, including regular flights for medical care as well from different communities. But for the communities that are the farthest, including, for example, Nunavik in northern Quebec, when there would be a medical emergency, the only real way to quickly get a child down here for a more advanced medical care is by Challenger airplane, just because they're faster. And up until a few months ago, well, what happened is that the Challenger would go up north, pick up a child, and then tell the caregiver or parent that they couldn't come. So the child would come alone, be brought down here. We would see the child alone. You can imagine that a child coming down for medical care anywhere, even if it was a child that's down the street from the hospital, the fact of just being alone in an environment that they don't know what's going on, they don't recognize anyone, people are poking, prodding, starting intravenous lines, doing x-rays, all this kind of stuff is, I think, by anyone's standard, traumatizing as an event. Often the younger ones only speak Inuktitut, and most of us working in Montreal, for example, or in Quebec City, don't know how to speak Inuktitut. So there'd be a huge, obviously, language barrier. In the summer of 2017, having been involved in two of these cases over the summer, one of a child who had suffered a head trauma and another one who had swallowed a coin that was stuck in the kid's throat. And I think for some reason, I don't know why then, because it's been a long-standing issue. We see hundreds of these kids every year. But for whatever reason, seeing these two kids alone in our trauma bay really just hit home in this way of recognizing the generational like impact that this kind of practice continued to have, particularly in the context of Indigenous children being forcibly removed from their families in the context of residential school, but being put into foster care, all this kind of stuff, historically. And at that point, 
really hit me hard that this is completely ridiculous and that it has to change. The caregivers in these situations would be brought down by regular flight in the next 24 or 48 hours. But from Nunavik, there's usually only one flight per day. And if there are weather conditions that are not favorable, then that flight can get canceled. So oftentimes, caregivers would only be able to come down to be with their child one, two, sometimes even three days later. And that's one of the reasons why this adversely impacted that population because of the geographic distance as well. Because in other situations, caregivers could at least drive down depending on how far they were, not that that's optimal, or they would have other flight options as well. What's your understanding of why caregivers were not permitted on the AVAC flights? What AVAC and the government historically would say would be it's an issue of safety, it's an issue of medical care, it's an issue of confidentiality. And the reason they would say confidentiality is sometimes the challenger plane would need to pick up more than one patient. I think they could carry up to three to four patients at a time. So they argued that because of confidentiality reasons, they couldn't have a caregiver on board because then the other patient's confidentiality would be compromised. And they would give these arguments because people, groups, and communities themselves have been trying to have this practice change for years, since at least the early 1990s. When we launched our campaign, the health minister essentially said exactly, almost verbatim, the same arguments that had been used, you know, 10 years ago, for example, in 2005, when the Quebec Human Rights Commission had brought this issue up. But the reality is that it ultimately really was a cultural issue within EVAC. People just did not feel the need or feel comfortable dealing with a parent or caregiver on the plane. I don't know if anyone's ever going to say that, but I think ultimately that is the fundamental core issue. And some of that clearly is rooted in colonial thought and racism because there is this longstanding prejudice against many of these parents and caregivers that influence healthcare providers, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. What did the campaign involve? There were a lot of people that were involved in many ways in the campaign, but I was kind of spearheading and coordinating it in different ways. The thing actually we did for the first few months was basically research and kind of putting out feelers. So, for example, in, I think, September of 2017, I was asked to speak at an event at McGill University Health Center that was centered around equity and healthcare. And so I brought this issue up there. Most people were flabbergasted. Ultimately, it was a lot of research. So what we ended up doing, there's a trio of pediatric residents that were very keen on working on this. And there's several other colleagues who were very, very supportive. And we started looking into things. We looked at the whole issue of what's practiced like across the country outside of Quebec. I had anticipated that other jurisdictions in Canada would be doing this. And my thought process at the time was basically going to be to get across Canada campaign going to end this practice. We basically, I think, reached every university-affiliated pediatric center in the country. And we were incredibly surprised to find out that every single center we contacted had either a practice or an explicit policy that favored caregiver accompaniment for pediatric transport. And in some cases, that had been the case for 10, 15, if not 20 years. We did a literature search in the medical scientific literature for practice in North America and in Europe in terms of what the pediatric transport experts suggest should be done. As part of that literature search, we highlighted, I guess, the importance of having caregiver presence during emergency care for children. And we also actually did a qualitative survey of our colleagues in the pediatric emergency department and the pediatric intensive care unit to get a sense of what other people recognize as being issues that perhaps we hadn't thought about yet. 
after I collated all this information and drafted a letter in which we highlighted all these points. The big things would be medical care, so the fact that there's a communication barrier, that there's issues with regards to consent, that the parents can't be there to advocate for their child, safety of the child. We had situations where a child who was not accompanied fell out of their stretcher, for example. So clinical care was the first main issue. The other issue ended up being the literature, just like we said, to prove standard of care. And then we also made sure to include a bit of a historical check, a reality check, to highlight the consequences that forced separation and removal of these children from their communities has had over the years. And that the implication for a child who's taken away from their family to board a plane and then sent down to the south is obviously very, very loaded. So that letter we sent sometime in mid-December of 2017. And we waited several weeks for a favorable reply, but that unfortunately didn't come. I was already kind of talking a bit about this publicly here and there. So there were some journalists who were in the know, and so they were very interested in moving forward with the story. And so on January 24, 2018, it made the front page of La Presse Plus, as well as the Montreal Gazette. We did interviews on the flagship radio shows for CBC, Radio-Canada, as well as several other very popular radio shows, TV interviews, etc., and that made huge, huge waves. That kind of forced the government to respond. But like I mentioned earlier, their response initially was a broken record of saying, well, we're not going to change anything. This is the practice. There are too many issues of concern here. There was one letter that was submitted to La Presse Plus that came from a woman whose name is Catherine Houdon. She's actually a former pediatric nurse who worked in Chisasabi, which is a Cree community in northern Quebec. So she was working there as a nurse. Her family was there. One of her kids had some medical issues. He was two years old at the time. His condition was such that she really didn't have much of a choice and said that he had to go down ASAP. This is in 2008. She asked the challenger team if she'd be allowed to accompany him. They said no. And then he basically suffered brain death on the plane. It was absolutely heartbreaking as a story. And that, I think, just totally blew the lid off this issue. If it hadn't been viral already, it became viral at that point. And then it was just a slew of one thing after another. The Canadian Pediatric Society came out. The other pediatric hospital in Montreal came out. An anthropologist who's from an indigenous community outside of Quebec City, Isabelle Picard, she heard about this. I had no connection with her, but she basically, on her own, started mobilizing her own networks and ended up getting a petition that was deposited at the National Assembly of Quebec. And so there were all these almost spontaneous initiatives that were happening at spin-offs from the campaign. And then on February 15th, the health minister at the time, Gaetan Barrette, called the media to the EVAC hangar and announced that there would be a change in practice. For many of us, it was kind of a sigh of relief, but many of us were also very explicit about being cautiously optimistic because we all know that governments have a long-standing history of breaking promises to Indigenous communities. And so we weren't necessarily holding our breath for this to happen overnight. And sure enough, it did not. We continued to receive Indigenous and other kids unaccompanied for months after that. So as someone who had experience organizing in more grassroots settings, what did you find different in this setting where you were organizing directly in your professional role and with your colleagues? It was definitely new terrain for me in that way, because historically, most of my social justice work has been outside of the walls of the hospital, outside of the walls of my day-to-day work. So initially, it was such foreign territory that I didn't exactly know how much to push, how much not to, because I still needed the support. Not, I didn't necessarily have institutional support, but I definitely had colleague support from the get-go. That initial letter that I was talking about, it was co-signed by the division director of the pediatric emergency department and the division director of the pediatric intensive care unit. That's, I think, what lent it a lot of weight. 
But I've also always been used to organizing in, you know, very horizontal, anti-authoritarian circles. And so it definitely felt a bit strange for me to be spearheading, coordinating all of this because it was very centralized, which is not something I'm used to. But I also saw the, I wouldn't say necessity because I'm sure there were other ways of doing this. But from a practical level, it kind of made sense for me to be playing that role. But as part of playing that role, what I tried to do also was to make it as horizontal as possible to make sure that at least at our hospital, for example, that people were actively involved. And so when we'd get, for example, media requests, it wasn't only me that did them. They were often shared with others. And then similarly, you know, connecting with the Canadian Pediatric Society, St. Justin and other groups as we kept going forward was kind of a way of, quote unquote, decentralizing a little bit. But it was challenging because there's also always that question when we're talking about doing solidarity work of knowing when to lead and when to follow. There were definitely moments where I wasn't sure how much, like I said, to push forward. But then, you know, there were Indigenous families that came out publicly to speak out about this issue in the context of the campaign. And then there were groups like the Canadian Pediatric Society that I think what was fascinating was that when they came out with their release in February, one of their quotes was in their letter, choosing not to revise antiquated policies reinforces the racism that has built into our healthcare system. We need to work together to dismantle these colonial systems. This is a quote from their letter. And for someone who's been a member of the Canadian Pediatric Society, to me, it was kind of earth shattering that they would come out with that kind of a very, very strong statement talking about dismantling colonial systems. I feel like when they publicly did that, then it gave me a little bit more license, I guess, freedom to continue to frame the campaign in ways that are more consistent, I guess, with my own politics and experience. I guess in that way, it's this interesting organic process of, you know, the campaign kind of developing as it's kept moving. One of the most significant elements, I think, of the campaign was another spontaneous initiative by a member of the public, where a member of the public who had been following this issue confronted the health minister in June at a community center and said, why is it that it's June now, you know, the announcement was made months ago, and these kids are still coming unaccompanied? And the health minister, Gaetan Barrette, went on these rants, but eventually said something to the effect, I I can't remember the exact quote right now, but, you know, I can guarantee you that in the next six months, there's going to be one case of a family that's refused from boarding the plane because they're going to be under the influence. And that happens all the time. Now, this person had the foresight to have recorded the conversation, and then it got leaked to the media. And then on National Indigenous Peoples Day, on June 21st, this broke, and it was huge. And all the Indigenous leaders of the provincial organizations here in Quebec, they all came out essentially in unison saying, this is unacceptable, this is an example of colonial thought, and Gaetan Barrette has to resign. To get back to your original question, I think historically, some of us, not all of us, have hesitation, let's say, working with journalists or with the media. And obviously, a lot of that is very understandable and is rooted in different histories. But in this case, we would not have been able to do what we did were it not for the media. That's one element. The other element that goes against a bit of our experiences, I guess, was I was invited to testify at the Public Inquiry Commission on Relations Between Indigenous Peoples and Certain Public Services in Quebec. I was invited to testify as an expert witness about the campaign. Several people had encouraged me to say, oh, maybe you should you know, bring it up with them or whatnot. But my instinct, because of being so skeptical again of you know government mandated commissions and things like that, was to not want to do that. 
partly because I didn't want to risk legitimizing a process that possibly Indigenous communities thought was not legitimate. But then I did my own reaching out and I realized that there was no call for boycotting this commission. And in fact, many Indigenous communities and leaders were participating. So I ended up going ahead with that. And that actually made a very significant difference as well in terms of having an impact on the reach of the campaign. That was in March of 2018. From what I understand, another important political decision in this campaign was to center indigenous kids. That is, to center the people who were most severely impacted by the practice that you were trying to change. Obviously, not all campaigns make that choice. So talk about the practical and political importance for you of doing so. Yes, we made the explicit decision because, for one, at the hospital that I work at, the kids that are transferred to us are coming from primarily Cree and Inuit communities. That's just our catchment area. So for us, it was important to center the Indigenous kids for that reason, but also because they were disproportionately impacted, especially the kids coming from Nunavik. So, for example, you know, a kid who was transferred in the Gaspé Z to Quebec City, it's not ideal by any stretch of the imagination for that child to be alone. But those caregivers or parents would have typically other options to get to Quebec City sooner rather than later. So, again, it's not ideal for the child to be transported alone, but at least in terms of the delay before the parents can reach them, that was mitigated. Whereas the kids coming from up north from Nunavik, that was not the issue. So to respond to your question, I think oftentimes, even on the left, this is an issue that comes up not infrequently. I kind of refer to it as lowest common denominator politics. So where the idea is to not necessarily always take the issue that maybe will be a bit more contentious in order to appeal to the greatest number of people. So, for example, in doing migrant justice and health justice work around people who are non-status, for example, it comes up over and over and over again that when we're talking about pushing for campaigns for healthcare for all, for example, regardless of immigration status, inevitably, even on the left, there will often be arguments saying, oh, but, you know, maybe we should just focus on, you know, families that have to wait three months before being eligible for OHIP or RAMQ or whatever, because there's a three-month wait for people who are landed immigrants for example, before being eligible for provincial health care, instead of starting with the people who are most adversely affected. We ended up making the clear decision from the get-go that we were not going to ignore the reality for non-Indigenous kids, but we definitely centered it on Indigenous kids. This is a very important, I think, lesson for those of us on the radical left that can be used, I think, to counter that argument of lowest common denominator strategies is that when we won, when the campaign eventually won, and, you know, since mid-September, all of these kids pretty much systematically, although there are a few rare exceptions, are coming accompanied now by our caregiver. That change in practice obviously benefited Indigenous kids coming from Nunavik, but it's impacted all kids across the province. So I think the take-home message, at least from that aspect of things, was that if we do organize around the reality of people and communities who are most adversely affected, if and when we win, then those victories are actually going to be way more far-reaching than the incremental approach that's often pushed forward. Are there any other major lessons that you've drawn in terms of organizing from this campaign? Something that we kept highlighting, and that lent to its credibility, its strength, I guess, is that we always recognized the previous attempts that were made to change this practice. And I think it's important to root ourselves in that kind of history. In the early 1990s, a colleague of mine actually launched an initiative where 
hundreds of Inuit families had signed on to a petition to change this practice. And that was basically ignored by the government at the time. And subsequently, there were several other attempts by other organizations and other communities to do the same. They did not prove to be successful, but they allowed kind of the chipping away, I think, to what ultimately was successful. I'm not convinced that even this exact same kind of campaign in terms of how it was organized would have worked or won in 1990, let's say. And I think the reason for that is that the political terrain with respect to recognizing indigenous self-determination movements has changed because of those movements themselves. And so I think that played a very significant role in the success of the campaign. At the other hand, this was an issue that impacted kids. So I think it was a no-brainer for a lot of people. It was very easy to get on board. But the reality is, is that there are clearly colonial practices, including in healthcare, that persist, that have incredibly adverse consequences with respect to the well-being of Indigenous communities in the province and across the country. And those practices and those policies are still very well in place and need to be confronted. So clearly, this kind of work needs to continue. But I think the lesson is that it's important to be politicized, I think, and to bring in historical realities rather than just kind of making things human interest story, because it's the history and political reality and social realities, I think, that lent a lot of strength to this campaign in particular. So this campaign is done, but how else do you hope to get involved in challenging medical colonialism in Canada and in Quebec? Around this time, I was able to do, along with others, a lot of public work, you know, speaking in CIGEPs and universities and colleges, at the hospital and different union conferences. And every time I've spoken, I've always talked about the history of medical colonialism in Quebec and in Canada, because I think it's imperative to talk about that, to be able to root things in that reality. And what I found surprising is that in many of those spaces, there were certain histories that people were just simply not aware of. I do think that as someone who works within the medical establishment, I feel a definite sense of responsibility that comes as an ally to challenge the medical establishment on these issues. In that context, the work that I see myself maybe doing for the next few months at least is to use the A Hand to Hold campaign as a bit of a case study to show, on the one hand, the ongoing reality and consequences of medical colonialism and saying that it's not a thing of the past and also talking about systemic racism and institutional racism in the healthcare sector, because it's something that people, again, say, oh, it's 2018, that doesn't really exist. But this example clearly show that racism is very widespread within our society and at the highest levels of government. And so I think it's a very useful case study to continue to chip away at making people recognize that the medical establishment has a very active and had a very active role in perpetuating the colonial project. And that those of us who work within it as, you know, allies and solidarity activists have a role to confront that, to finally make things change. You have been listening to my interview with Samir Shaheen Hussein about the A Hand to Hold campaign that took place last year in Quebec. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.